Welcome to the Dr. Bub's Performance Podcast, giving you the latest evidence-based research and cutting-edge insights for elite mental and physical performance. He's connecting you directly with the world's leading experts and coaches. Here's your host, Dr. Bubs. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Season 2 of the Dr. Bubs Performance Podcast. This is Episode Number 1 of the new season, and to kick things off... In this new year, we're going to talk all things weight loss with expert Danny Lemon, founder of Sigma Nutrition. Danny's going to dive into the principles of weight loss, what are the overarching mechanisms common to all weight loss strategies. He's also going to discuss the fundamental role of compliance and client success, as well as how fiber and protein can be your fat loss friends, secrets to changing client habits and supporting behavior changes, as well as strategies for supporting long-term weight loss in the general public as well as athletes. If you are new to the podcast and would like a nice little buffet of content and insights to kick off the new year, then please circle back and check out our best of 2017 year-end episode number 52 of season one. Of course, if you're looking to dig a little deeper into some of these areas discussed by Danny, you can also check out past episodes from season one such as episode number two about metabolic flexibility with Dr. Mike T. Nelson, episode number 13 with Dr. Stefan Guianet talking neuroregulation of appetite, as well as episodes number 25 with Dr. Brad Schoenfeld talking meal frequency and weight loss, and for those embarking on a keto approach, episode number 33 with Mr. Ryan Lowry. As always, you can check out my simple actionable tips, which I call my layups, at drbubs.com forward slash podcast, as well as the more in-depth performance tips from this episode. Lastly, before we get started, a quick word from our new sponsor, Totem Sport. Totem Sport is the world's only 100% natural supplement. No sugar, no artificial flavors, absolutely nothing added. What is it? Totem Sport is the world's purest deep ocean mineral water. Collected from natural algae blooms in the Atlantic Ocean, Totem Sport is the only sports drink supplement that contains all 78 naturally occurring minerals and trace elements. Totem Sport is highly bioavailable and has been shown in research to enhance stamina by stabilizing blood glucose levels during exercise, as well as strengthening immunity by buffering exercise-induced reductions in key immune markers. The research on deep ocean mineral water is ramping up, a recent study highlighting its major promise as the optimal rehydrating strategy over spring water and other sports drinks. Totem Sport is the evolution of hydration, the world's only 100% natural sports drink, tested and approved by Informed Sport and Informed Choice. Totem Sport, defy the norm. All right, let's kick off season two with episode number one on weight loss with Mr. Danny Lemon. Enjoy the show. I'm joined today by Danny Lemon, founder of Sigma Nutrition and the popular podcast Sigma Nutrition Radio. He has a formal scientific background in academia, completing a master's degree in nutritional sciences at University College Cork. During this time, Danny researched vitamin D directly under the world-renowned researcher, Professor Kevin Cashman. Danny also works as a performance nutritionist to professional MMA fighters, professional boxers, and competitive powerlifters. He's consulted with several teams in a number of sports and has an online coaching service helping a wide array of clients with nutrition-related issues. Outside the nutrition world, Danny is a Brazilian jiu-jitsu blue belt, raw power lifter, and lifelong Arsenal fan. Danny, thanks for covering out the time today. Thanks so much for having me on. It's a real pleasure. Awesome. Well, listen, before we jump in and, and talk all things weight loss for men here in the new year, um, can you give folks a little bit more uh, background on how 
what drove you into nutrition? Yeah, sure. So I think a couple of different things kind of converged to kind of lead to where I am now. To keep it fairly brief, I think the first was for my own interest in developing as an athlete. Uh, I was big into sports all growing up. Uh, and as many people are when we're trying to always get the extra edge in whatever sport we're competing in. And so really I started to try to uh, tease apart what might help performance. Uh, and around the time I started college, uh, I was studying a science degree. So learning how to look through scientific literature, read papers, interpret that, get through textbooks and so on. During that time, as a kind of hobby outside of college, I was thinking, okay, how can I improve my own performance in the gym and, and out in the field? And so I started looking at different areas related to sports performance, one of them, of course, being nutrition, and uh, came across a few things within uh, different research papers that were kind of different to the mainstream messages we typically hear. And it kind of piqued my interest enough that I kept reading about it and I found it very fascinating. And uh, just it kind of snowballed from, from there. And I uh, took a more wider, more varied approach to nutrition and, and really started to look more deeply at the kind of health aspects to it. And uh, like from there, the interest grew and grew. After my initial undergraduate degree, uh, I, I went as a science teacher for a year, but decided to go back and do a master's degree in nutrition purely because I was so fascinated by it. And this is the area I wanted to stay in. So yeah, I took it from there and uh, the rest is history as they say. Awesome. That's fantastic. Yeah, it's amazing how obviously nutrition touches all areas of, of health and chronic disease. And of course, shockingly, you know, in the new year, everyone's the gyms are full, everyone's recommitting. Um, and as you know, in the research, I mean, about nine out of 10 people fail to maintain their weight loss after a year. So if we start this whole discussion off with sort of general population, um, sort of that 30,000 foot view, a client, maybe a, a typical male client trying to lose some belly fat, you know, sedentary job, wants to lose that 15 or 20 pounds, you know, where would you start in terms of nutrition for that type of person? Yeah, so of course, with the kind of usual disclaimer that everyone is different and a different approach might suit them. 100%. I think some core principles we can really look at it across the board. And then that's one of the big concepts I try and get across to people most often is that as opposed to us spending so much time thinking about the different methods that are out there and every type of diet someone hears about or some sort of, whether that's a fad diet or a well-established dietary approach, either of those are just all different types of methods you can get to, to, to get to an end point. Whereas any diet that's gonna be successful and work they all work by the same few principles. So having an understanding of what those principles actually are going to be, we can then set up the approach for that person in a way that's most likely for them to comply to the diet and adhere to it in a, a long-term manner that's gonna to lead to success. Uh, because we know regardless of what a diet promises on paper or even physiologically or metabolically what might happen, if someone simply can adhere to that for a sustained period of time, there's gonna be zero success. So we have to think of what's going to be effective in that someone can stick to a set of principles over a given period of time. Uh, so just to touch on a, a couple of these, I think the first one for people to bear in mind is that no matter what strategy they're using, if it's going to be a diet that over an extended period of time leads to fat loss, it's going to be something that puts them in an energy deficit or a calorie deficit. Now, that doesn't mean that we need to count calories. It doesn't mean someone needs to track all their intake on an app. It simply means that whatever strategy you're using, it's probably going to cause either a decrease in your food intake, an increase in your energy expenditure, or a combination of both. Now, 
any diet that someone goes on and, and it works will work mainly by that driving reason. Uh, and so, like I said, it doesn't have to mean that you, you track it, but you have to be aware that whatever intervention you're using is going to lead to negative energy balance. And we can maybe talk about that in a bit more in-depth if you wish, uh, but that's going to be the first kind of key principle that we need to take care of. Uh, second, that we can talk about overall food quality, which is, of course, hugely important. Uh, that's going to help allow someone to stick to a certain level of food intake. If you're trying to base a diet, and again, we're trying to decrease someone's overall calories, if you're trying to do that on hyperpalatable, highly processed foods, it's going to be much more difficult given the amount of hunger you're going to experience, the drive to consume more food, and so on. So getting minimally processed foods, plenty of uh, fiber, probably a decent amount of protein in the diet is going to be important. Uh, so there are a few kind of principles and there are more others that we can probably touch on, uh, but I try and get people aware of there are some principles to stick to. Now where someone is going to start on that, I think the, the easiest one is for someone just to first take stock of where they're at. Look at what they're doing, what behaviors right now are something, something that's going to be taking them away from their goal. What behaviors could they add in that is going to be more likely to improve that? And what's the kind of lowest hanging fruit? Because I think most people trying to make a change know some of the stuff they're doing that's going to be unhelpful. So identify those and we can start working through strategies to, I suppose, one at a time, take care of those. Absolutely. I mean, there's some great points there in terms of compliance being just absolutely huge in terms of progress uh, for folks. Um, caloric restriction really being that ultimate mechanism, that overarching theme across all diets like, that leads to where we want to get to, uh, and of course, food quality. And one of the things with this population of, of people just trying to, you know, busy, maybe, you know, dad's trying to lose some weight in terms of uh, abdominal adiposity, that type of thing is, you know, low carbs become popular. Uh, but when you look at some of the things that you mentioned there, you tend to see people eliminate things from their diet that are things like high in sugars, high in processed foods. So those hyper palatable foods are, are being reduced as well as the high caloric foods. So can you touch on, um, you know, the low carb diet and how sometimes people will, as we get into these other areas of athletes and everything else, it takes on a different um, tone in terms of people, black and white view of things. Yeah, sure. So I think the first thing to, uh, to separate out is when we're talking about the effectiveness of should someone restrict carbohydrates or is a low carb diet better than another diet. The kind of two ways we can look at this is first from a practical pragmatic view. If someone goes on a low carb diet, will that uh, allow them to lose body weight, allow them to be successful and so on? And the clear answer is obviously yes, because many people have done it. We have literature showing that people embark on low carb diets and be successful. The other side to that though is physiologically is that going to be superior to a diet that is perhaps higher in carbohydrate but is also matched for calorie and protein intake and when we look at that in the literature it seems that it's there's no real difference so it's nothing doing nothing magical outside of that driving that calorie deficit per se but what it can do is for many people at least be a useful way for if they start to reduce their carbohydrate intake we know that without even consciously thinking about it, a lot of people's calorie intake tends to come down. Usually the, the mechanism may be that they're, uh, number one, like you mentioned, hyperpalatable foods tend to just be gone from the diet because you can include most of the stuff that we would classify as, as highly processed due to the, the carbohydrate content. And then second from that, there tends to be an increase in protein intake overall, just because of the foods you now have to include in your diet you tend to get this increase in protein, which increases satiety levels. And so people just end up eating less overall. So if you are a person that finds that strategy useful, then go for it. If you find, 
having a, a lower carbohydrate intake allows you to easier maintain uh, good healthy habits and you're making progress, then great. Uh, but I think the main point is for people to be aware that it's not required, that it's not the only method you can use. And if you are someone who finds that very hard to stick to and it's very difficult, you don't need to be on a very low carbohydrate diet. You don't need to go on a ketogenic diet. Um, you can have other methods that, again, will allow you to maybe consume more carbohydrate as long as you take care of those principles of like I say, overall energy intake, making sure most of your food quality is good. You dial into things like portion size eating in response to say hunger and satiety as opposed to maybe some uh, hedonic uh, things that are driving more food intake. And and so just being aware that there's different methods and you don't have to necessarily do this if it's not going to be useful for you. Um, because so many people when they hear particularly a lot of the, the messages and when things get popular are thinking that I, I need to do this otherwise I won't be able to be successful, it's just not true. We have to find something that's going to work for you and if you find something extremely difficult then there is no point in doing it. Yeah, very well said in terms of that idea of everything's a tool, low-carb diets are a tool, and if you go back to these principles of achieving that caloric deficit, then definitely there's a lot of different tools that we can use. Um, now, if we stick with this population, again, like in terms of things like movement, um, daily movement, you know, obviously very sedentary. Are there suggestions or things that you tend to be layering in with some of these clients in terms of supporting movement or, or things you might do in maybe a training standpoint? Yeah, sure. I, I think the just the overall idea of being more active can be really useful. And we can obviously, the, the first layer people think of is just energy expenditure. And that is, of course, part of it. If you get someone who's sedentary and just starts going and uh, being more physically active, whether that's through exercise or just getting in more regular walks or doing any form of, of movement, that is going to lead to a, a slight increase in energy expenditure. Uh, however, I think from the big picture view, why it's perhaps even more important is one, from the health standpoint, we know simply without any changes in weight loss, just being more active is going to make someone healthy, uh, metabolically at least. And so uh, beyond that, I think tying into trying to make change with nutrition and sleep and all the other things that we want to change for someone to be able to become healthier and to lose this body fat, being more generally active, at least what I've seen anecdotally in people, tends to be part of building that momentum. And on days where they're able to get out, and even if it's a 15-minute walk in the morning, that tends to lead to better food choices later in the day, uh, whether that's actually through better appetite regulation because there are calories, or I think it's simply a psychological framework that you're doing these things that are beneficial for you. And I, th I think most people can kind of recognize that uh, an experience that they've had maybe before, if they're used to being active and then suddenly maybe they get an injury or they're busy at work and they're just, they can't do any exercise or movement, uh, they tend to find that food choices tend to decrease at the same time as well. So it's all, to me at least, interconnected in that if we can get a couple of things moving together, there tends to build momentum between all of them. So for that reason, uh, particularly when people are trying to change their nutrition, if we can get them to be more active if they are sedentary, that could be simply getting out in the morning at lunchtime, 15 minutes even outside for a walk. Uh, that even can, that light exposure can then help their sleep. So there's all these secondary knock-on effects. Uh, so for sure, I think it's taking stock of where you're at and what can we add from where you currently are. So if you're doing no movement at all, what's the first few things that we can add in that you think 
uh, if we were to say on a scale of one to ten, how certain are you? Can you start doing this uh, change? If you're like a, a nine or a ten, let's make that change and start getting someone more active. Yeah, great points there. I mean, things like you know, standing desks, taking the stairs. Um, you mentioned things even just appetite-wise. I'm amazed at people who are you know get hungry or cravings throughout the day when they're at work. If they go on holiday or or whatnot, they can go for hours or walking for four or five hours. They don't get hungry. So it's amazing that psychological mm-hmm. aspect of that really comes in as well. Now, if we shift gears and talk about you know recreational athletes, guys who are fit or perhaps you know used to be quite fit in in college or high school, and and now with family and job commitments, don't have enough time or really trying to balance out the routine, what kind of roadblocks do you often find for these guys who are trying to get leaner but still struggling with uh, bringing that body fat percentage down? Yeah, so there's a few key things that tend to hold people back. The first one is something we talked about earlier on, is that uh, inability to be able to adhere with the strategy they've laid out in front of themselves. And we see this quite clearly in research, uh, what is termed this intermittent loss of dietary adherence where just over time, bit by bit, the compliance to the set structure that we have in place slowly gets worse and worse. And this is obviously at more of risk of happening when someone is extremely busy at work or has exams at college or any of these other psychological stressors that may distract us from the things we're going to do each day. And so potentially the way around that is to try and build systems and behaviors and habits that we can, to some degree, fall back on even when we have these other psychological stressors or just have an awareness that during times that we're going to be very busy, it's going to be difficult to do the things we usually do. So can we put a contingency plan in place? Can we plan ahead? If we know we have a busy week coming up, can we maybe prepare extra meals that we have now that we don't have to cook each day that we usually do because we're not going to have time? So we're not going to therefore go and get a meal out that we can't really control what's going to be in it can we if we're going to be shorter on time modify our training for a week or so to make sure we can still get a sufficient amount of training volume in even though we have a shorter time crunch so maybe for a couple of weeks you prioritize different types of movements maybe use uh, supersets to get your training uh, done in a shorter space of time maybe you do high intensity intervals uh, on a couple of days because you only have time to do that what ways can we make some changes to still continue to make progress and plan ahead really i think is the big one so when we know there's going to be times of of not being able to comply with our usual strategies being flexible and being able to adapt to that. And I think that's the big difference between people who are successful and not. People who tend to fall away from diets and fall away from progress seem to be doing everything perfectly for a while, and then anytime an obstacle throws that off, they feel like they've failed or they've messed up, and now the, the, the diet is broken or the plan has gone out the window, and then they've it's this all or nothing mentality. So instead of that being more flexible and saying, okay, I'm not gonna be able to do exactly what I want for this week or for the next couple of weeks or this period of time because of work commitments and college and so on. What can I do to adapt to make it the best that I can for that period of time and then I'll be able to get back on track afterwards. And I think that kind of flexible mindset is uh, is a key issue. So that tends to be uh, the biggest one. And then outside of that, I think uh, we can obviously talk about other things that tend to derail our progress, um, particularly during for busy people. Uh, a huge one is, of course, sleep. And once people have a busy period where sleep is more and more restricted, 
that leads to uh, poor decision making overall. That obviously ties into diet. It's going to make people more lethargic in general, less likely to want to go and uh, train. It can lead directly to different changes in appetite, particularly for uh, hyperpalatable foods. And so that's one of the, the key things for busy people of like taking care of sleep as much as is practical. And again, I, I get totally that for many people, they can't have control and sleep as much as they want all the time. But maybe being able to get extra naps throughout the day, being able to be a bit more tighter on what time they get to bed, maybe to make sure that their room is completely dark. Uh, when they do have time to catch up, uh, maybe over the weekend, getting in extra naps to kind of like mitigate some of that sleep that's been restricted because that's one of the, the, the things that ties back into it. So there are just a few things. I'm, I'm sure there's plenty more we can we can talk about, but I think there are definitely a couple. Planning ahead, um, knowing that there's going to be this loss of adherence unless we put a contingency in place, and then taking care of external stuff that gets messed up during busy periods like sleep, for example. Yeah, both great points, and it's amazing how things like sleep, obviously very popular now, and people realize that sleep is important for them, but you know, being able to actually implement those sleep suggestions, some of the ones that you made, they're actually getting more sleep because, as, as you know, it ties into you know worsened blood sugar control the next day. It ties into mm -hmm. poor decision-making, even in terms of performance, whether you're an athlete or whether it's mental performance. We see you know negative effects and knock-on effects on that as well. So, so great points there. Now, if we shift gears a little bit and just talk about assessments or baselines. If somebody is, you know, trying to lose 20 pounds or they're sort of a, a fit recreational athlete, what kind of baseline uh, measurements do you like to use with clients or would you suggest? So again, I think the ones that we can have that are going to be the most consistent are going to be useful. So for example, people thinking, uh, I want to assess my body fat, so I need to go and pay hundred dollars to get a DEXA scan. That's not all that useful because for, for one, one measurement on a DEXA isn't going to really be all that use in and of itself. It's these continued measurements over time that you can compare and look at trends that's going to be useful. So unless you're someone who's in a position where every few weeks you plan on using a DEXA, don't need to think you need to use any uh, particularly special measurements, at least starting out. I think whilst we know that changes in body weight aren't 100% representative of change in body composition. Uh, and so someone, for example, could be losing body fat and increasing muscle mass over a certain period of time, and therefore the change in body weight doesn't really show that on a scale per se. In general, uh, particularly for um, uh, a case where we're going to have someone doing resistance training and eating a sufficiently high-protein diet, in those cases they're going to conserve most of the muscle mass. So because of that, any decreases in body weight are pretty much mainly going to be coming from body fat. So it's a pretty good proxy starting off. So for someone who's not a, shown any resistance towards wanting to measure body weight, uh, and I think generally most guys are pretty fine with, with stepping on a scale. For sure. Um, for that case, I think using daily body weight measures is really useful. So in our practice, we tend to, rather than having weekly measures or bi-weekly measures, uh, I think a much more useful strategy is being even more regular with uh, the body weight measurements. This does a couple of things. Number one, I think with, say, a weekly measure or bi-weekly or just even worse, just randomly now and again taking a body weight measurement, people are comparing two measures that isn't really a fair reflection of their progress because we know on any given day someone's body weight may be up or down completely nothing to do with their actual amount of body fat. 
It could be changes in water weight that they're holding based on how much they drank, their sodium intake over the previous 24 hours, their stress levels may be causing some water retention. It could be down to them how much glycogen is in their muscle uh, uh, and all these other factors that are going to influence the scale weight outside of just how much body fat they have. So using just two random time points and comparing them isn't a fair reflection. So instead, we will try and get to people to take it more regularly, ideally every day, but maybe at least three times a week, get an average over the week of what your body weight was, and then you're just looking at the general trend over a number of weeks. So when you look back every two, three, four weeks, even though on a day-to-day basis your body weight will be fluctuating up and down and it's going to be kind of going all over the place, there should be a general trend downwards that the average from week one compared to the average for week three or week four should be showing a decrease. I think that's a much more useful measure and it stops people worrying about any given day. Uh, so gotcha. daily, daily body measurements are really useful. I think to prevent um, kind of the, the other side of that for people who, have, who tend to jump in and maybe try and restrict their intake too much and get overly uh, worried about body weight and look at that as the only measure, we try and pair that with a performance marker. Uh, because if you are keeping a good track on performance and your performance is pretty good, either improving or at le- very least maintaining, at the same time as your body weight is going down, you're probably pretty certain that you're gradually losing uh, body fat and you're giving yourself still enough food to perform good quality training and it's not going to be overly uh, restrictive. If you have a case where someone just like flat out is semi-starving themselves, then you're going to see a pretty sharp decrease in performance. So I like to pair that up with those body weight changes. And then, of course, we can look at things like measurements if someone's uh, trying to maybe increase muscle mass or even if they're decreasing body weight measurements of waist, uh, uh, hip, uh, arm, legs, so on, depending on what the kind of focus for that particular client is. There are a few things. Uh, And then the final thing I'll say is obviously measures outside of body composition. So we will track time in bed per night and, again, look at weekly averages. Uh, so on average, how much time are you spending in bed? I think that can be a more useful metric than trying to gauge exactly how long you were asleep because we just don't have as much control. Whereas if you if you were – the time in bed is, is up to you to a certain degree. Um, that we might do a step count for someone who is trying to make sure they're getting enough physical activity, uh, particularly during a dieting phase when we know there may be a, a subconscious decrease in their activity levels. And then, obviously, if they're doing a training program, there's a whole host of other metrics we can discuss. But they are the primary ones. And even if you just had those few things I mentioned, that's more than enough data to give you a good starting point to make sure you're making the right decisions. Yeah, that's great. I mean, uh, that's a great tip to, to be pairing up some of the performance metrics with the, with the baseline weight as well. Any uh, preferred uh, metrics for strength, whether it's upper body, lower body, that you find yourself using with clients? Uh, so it really depends on the goal of the training for that particular client. So obviously, if we're working with, for example, a powerlifter, it's super easy. Right? They care about squat, bench, deadlift, yep. and they're, they're total. If it's uh, someone that's competing in a specific type of, of sport, whether that's maybe, uh, let's say, a tennis player or a football player or so on, there's going to be slight differences in, in how we're rating their performance because the, the goal of their training is to make them more resilient to injury and to be able to go and perform their given sport better as opposed to 
just simply get stronger in a particular lift. So it may be a bit different there. So what can be useful for some of those athletes is also subjective measures of performance. Um, and people tend to write off subjective measures a lot, and especially now in this kind of era of like quantifying all this data for sure. and having apps for everything. And really, when you look at the literature on for like in stress science and pain science and a lot of stuff on recovery modalities and physiotherapy, one of the huge things you see is that uh, subjective measures are often even more beneficial or more predictive of someone's actual state than even objective markers. And so I think that doesn't mean one is necessarily always better than the other, but having a, a pairing of those could be useful. So uh, for performance, it may even be for an athlete uh, each time you do a training session, let, let's give you, can you rate that out of your usual performance? How good was that? And if it's a, a one-off decrease, that's fine. People have those days. But if you're seeing consist, consistent declines uh, by a large margin, and then you compare it up with an objective measure, that's uh, important too. So um, if it's something that's easy quantifiable, like you're in the gym, then sure, go on those numbers. If it's a more kind of skill-based field sport, then using a subjective marker could be useful too. And then obviously you can look at things like uh, heart rate variability or resting heart rate, uh, depending on what someone has available to them. So all these things in on their own probably aren't like the thing that's going to show you if someone is making progress or under recovering, for example. But in combination, when you put all this kind of data together, you can get a better picture. Awesome. That's terrific. And this sort of dovetails into my next question around if we shift gears now into more elite athletes, professional athletes, you work a lot with, you know, MMA fighters, boxers, etc. So, you know, these sports where people need to weigh in and make weight for, for their competitions, you know, how does that change the rules in terms of your nutrition strategy for them to be able to stay lean or, or make weight for when it is time to compete? Yeah, I think the real big thing that maybe a lot of people miss is that eating for performance is a very different like underlying underlying philosophy than eating for health 100%. and if anyone looks at an elite athlete uh, an elite athlete so if you look at anyone that's going out and winning like olympic gold to get to that level they are doing things that is not necessarily good for their health and in, in fact very counterproductive to their health in many cases but that's what required to get at that level. And you can look at that from the training perspective. So if we were to think about, okay, how much training and physical activity and how hard should we push just to be super healthy? It's not gonna be the levels that these people are doing, right? So maybe go and lift some weights a few times a week, regularly walk, don't overly stress your system, but just enough to get an adaptation, as opposed to the crazy workloads that we're seeing elite athletes push. The same thing with nutrition, to, to kind of fuel elite levels of performance, we do things that are not going to be a good idea perhaps for health, particularly when done chronically in the long term. And so that's the biggest distinction that we are doing things, whether that's having athletes, um, uh, so after training they go and consume a carbohydrate drink, which is basically just drinking water with like pure sugar, 80 grams of it. That's not something you're going to give to someone in the general population after they lift some weights for half an hour. Um, similarly, Things like making weight for athletic competition and fighters that cut weight, that is an inherently dangerous and unhealthy practice to do. Unfortunately, we're in a position where their career depends on it. And if we don't help them to make the weight in a safe, uh, evidence-based manner, then they will just turn somewhere else that will promise them that they can make the weight. And so while ideally I would have none of my fighters have to cut weight at all and just 
weighing at whatever they typically walk around with, that's not real world, that's not practical. And so we just try and make it as safe and effective as, as possible, knowing that there are still some risks and still things that are very detrimental to health, whether you're dehydrating yourself, whether you are chronically under eating food for an extended period of time, uh, and so on. These are all compromises we make. So that's the big distinction I would say, uh, and how the rules change is that you are taking into account the person's number one priority being performance and not being health. Uh, and we can actually make this point about body composition as well. That um, <clears throat> I used to talk about this concept called the triangle of focus, where if you can imagine a triangle and three separate points of that triangle are the three primary goals someone may have when it comes to their nutrition and training. So one would be health, another point might be body composition, and the other uh, tip of the triangle would be athletic performance. Now if you place a, what I call a center of focus, if you put that bang in the middle of that triangle, it's now equidistant from all three of those points. So that would be a scenario where someone has an equal prioritization on each of those three goals. However, that's very rarely the case. Usually someone has a very strong bias in one direction. Now, the further you move that point towards any tip of that triangle, by nature you have to move away from the others. So the more you eat for, say, high-end athletic performance, you're going to be moving away from that kind of health aspect, so like the things to maximize true health, uh, for some of the examples I just gave. And at the same time, to be like truly uh, competing at an elite uh, level, you're probably moving away from the tip of, say, body composition. So uh, the easiest way to visualize this, if we think about the absolute extremes of body composition manipulation in humans, we're talking about elite-level bodybuilders, right? Guys with the most amount of muscle mass, the very least amount of body fat possible. If you were to take those guys the day they are on stage and look at their ability to perform a high-end workout, it's going to be pretty terrible, right? They, yeah, they can exactly. barely perform, right? So performance is compromised. Their health sure as well is compromised. They're, if you look at them on the day they compete, testosterone through the floor, there's no energy, their hormones are probably all out of whack. All these metabolic adaptations we get uh, occur as well. So we see that anywhere you move to any one of these goals takes away from another. And so people need to be aware of that, that there is sacrifice and compromises to move in each of these directions and getting to the elite levels of athletic performance and the elite levels of, say, uh, leanness in humans is inherently going to do some things that are going to be counterproductive towards your health. So just bear that in mind when you uh, look at these elite level athletes and what they're doing compared to what you probably should be doing. That's a great point. I mean, definitely even uh, for bodybuilders, even getting off the stage sometimes is extremely difficult right. without cramping up. So um, if we stay on this road of athletes perform or high performing athletes, uh, even if they're recreational uh, elite professional and trying to also maintain a, a body composition. Are there some some principles around you know whether it's fueling for exercise uh, um, that you that you would could, could give listeners some tips on? Uh, sure. So obviously the, the context is going to be sport dependent, and the main thing to look at is what energy systems someone use for a given sport. Uh, and there's a, a group of research in the UK. Um, James Morton, uh, who is the nutritionist for Team Sky Cycling. Uh, you have Graham Close, a number of others. And one phrase that tends to be popped up in a lot of the research is fueling uh, for the work required. So before you make any nutritional decisions, if you are an elite athlete, think about what the, is the demands of your sport. And then you have to fuel accordingly to that. So if you are in something like MMA or boxing, we know on a day-to-day -day basis 
you're doing high amounts of activity, but it's a very glycolytically demanding sport in that it uses a huge amount of glycogen and glucose to fuel the intensities you're working at. So therefore, you're going to have to provide adequate amount of both calories and carbohydrate to fuel that type of training. Similarly, if you are a powerlifter, then depending on your phase of training, it's going to be different of, of the, for example, the macronutrient breakdown you may need. So, uh, for example, if you are going in and you're doing low rep sets and you have plenty of rest periods between them, which is like typical for a strength block, you are not going to need the huge amounts of carbohydrate our MMA fighter who's training two to three times a day is consuming. You're both athletes, you're both elite at level, but you need to fuel for the work that's in front of you. Um, the other thing to mention, and this would be more of a conversation that's maybe specific to, to deep on sports nutrition, but is when we think of athletes, even if they're in a sport that requires, say, a lot of carbohydrate, we need to get away from this idea that, okay, you're sedentary, you don't eat carbs, you're an athlete, you eat loads of carbs. And it's high carb if you are an elite level athlete. Uh, and sure, so black and white. Sure. And, and like carbohydrates for, I would say, 95% of elite sports are going to have a beneficial impact on, on performance in that if you have full glycogen source for that performance. However, that doesn't mean every single day of your life you need to be consuming high amounts of carbohydrates all day long. Instead, we have to think about when is it that we need that full stores of glycogen and that high carbohydrate availability, i.e. on days that you are either competing, that you have a, a game, that you have an event, or you have a high-priority training session where your performance matters, and then maybe your carbohydrate intake differs then on a recovery day where you're not really focused on performance. It's more just a light run that you're going for. It's just to get some of that recovery back. Maybe it's a complete rest day. So again, fueling for the work that's required, and you can get these other adaptations from having uh, low-carbohydrate days, which is perhaps uh, beyond kind of what we're getting into here. So that's the first thing, fuel for the work that's required. Beyond that, I think putting a, a high emphasis on protein. So this goes across for pretty much any athlete. You could even talk recreation athletes here, but especially for elite athletes, protein, uh, not only a high protein diet, but having uh, protein distributed and dosed across the day in a manner that's gonna support uh, muscle protein synthesis. So that re repair and growth process of muscle is gonna be important for regardless of what sport you're doing. So making sure, I would say at least uh, for high protein meals across the day, potentially more, that pass a certain dose of protein that, uh, I, again, we get into protein uh, uh, metabolism, but it, a certain amount of leucine that's going to be in that dose. We're seeing probably around 2.5 to 3 grams of leucine is needed to maximize the MPS response. So for most, let's say, high-quality animal-based protein sources, this may correspond for most athletes to being a 20 to 40 gram serving of protein depending on your body size. So something in that region is going to be, uh, it, say, across the day, four meals or so, getting an adequate amount of protein is probably going to be supporting your muscle recovery and muscle repair and, and then muscle growth if that's a goal also. Um, go ahead. I, absolutely. Yeah, very well said. Um, you know, Dr. Stu Phillips is just down the road from Toronto here at McMaster University, mm -hmm. of course, so, um, world-renowned protein researcher and of course a good friend of mine dr tyler churchward Venn at maastricht university so it's great to hear you reiterating a lot of these points in terms of yeah leucine content and getting that a dose you know in that 20 gram or more at least throughout the day and i think for especially in a lot of athletes it's again something that a lot of them can perform based on you know genetics based on sheer willpower and sort of are not fueling or getting these these regular doses in so that's a uh, 
really great point that you made there. Now, if we shift over to things like even, you know, biomarkers, lab tests, if someone's trying to lose weight, whether they are, you know, for quote unquote, a fat dad trying to lose 20 pounds, if they're a recreational fit athlete, if they're someone who's more fit, are there any biomarkers on the lab testing side that, that you use or you would suggest? So um, the first thing I like to bring up when people ask about labs is a point that I think uh, would help a lot of people, at least from a stress point of view, first off, uh, is that there's loads of cool tests that can be done and, and hearing about them is really fascinating and interesting. However, sometimes that may work against us. And this was certainly me uh, a while back of that the more information we gather, whether it's on nutrition or, or blood tests or whatever testing is available, that we can, if you go and look hard enough, you can often find a problem that may not really be a problem. And by that I mean, for people who are doing all the fundamental stuff right, and they feel good, and everything is going smoothly, then there is no need to go start shelling out for tons of money for a whole battery of tests until you find one little thing that you may be able to optimize. I just don't think that's a useful strategy. So if you feel good, and your performance is going well, and you're making progress and your body composition is improving and you're doing all the things that we know you should, like sleeping properly, your food overall is pretty good, you're being active, then don't go mining until you find something that's wrong because that's certainly something that is a trap that's easy to fall into. Um, however, if there is something up in that you can't seem to be uh, recovering from the training you're doing, if you think you're doing everything right but you're not making progress, then again, I would have a first like a checklist of am I doing the things that I, I'm saying I'm doing, like the basics that I have down. Am I sleeping? Am I uh, getting the my nutrition on point? Am I being active? Am I doing that consistently? Uh, because really, if someone is not doing that stuff, and let's say they go and get a set of testing done and it flags up a few things, really, what are we going to do with that information? We're going to probably suggest the things that we're going to suggest anyway, right? If if someone is not – if someone is sleeping three hours a night consistently and they want to go and get all these tests done and they come back and their testosterone is low, are we going to – one of the first changes maybe recommend to that person is, hey, maybe you should start sleeping more and let's focus on that for a while. Now, we don't need the testing to do that if we know someone is, is not paying attention to it already. So uh, I just like making that point because I think uh, – we can definitely fall into the trap of doing so. Uh, beyond that, if something is still up and you think everything is going okay, um, there's I tend to refer people out depending on what they think the, the case may be. So if that is going to be, if they think they have some sort of clear gastrointestinal problem, I'll just get them refer them to a gastroenterologist. If it's something that they suspect is a, a sleep issue and they want to talk with someone in a sleep clinic, there's probably people in different areas that I find are going to be more of an expert than me or if they can find a, a doctor that they trust um, and that may be having to go through a few different ones and, and talk through it if they find someone they can trust and is, is kind of talking in, in a way that they believe can help them then I'm not against them collecting any particular data but uh, there's no kind of there's not one battery of tests I would say that I go and recommend to athletes as soon as they come in. It's kind of going to be dependent on what they're reporting, what kind of troubleshooting we've done up to now. And then from there, 
kind of making a best guess at what might be up and then maybe suggesting something. So at the uh, risk of having a very vague and non-useful <laughs> answer for you, uh, I, I, there's no kind of one test I'd point people out here, go and get this kind of set of labs done. Well, that's good. That's very well said. And, you know, we all often talk with like with my clients, things like nice to know versus need to know. And if people aren't struggling <clears> with pathologies and things, and a lot of this stuff's really just nice to know. And as, as you said, it, it brings us back to things like diet, exercise, lifestyle all the time. Um, and so you can, people can definitely be spending an awful lot of money for something that's just a point in time. So that's really important for people to consider. Um, now, if we dovetail this into even technology, I mean, in terms of devices, monitors, etc. Um, again, for someone trying to lose 20 pounds, for an athlete, are there areas there where you feel like maybe there's a bit more applicability or, or usefulness in being able to gather some daily data and get some longitudinal uh, data on for folks? Sure. So I think um, the cool thing with technology and, and a lot of the, the apps and software that's out there now is you'll hear a lot of times people discuss, oh, well, how accurate is this thing? So let's take a sleep tracker. For sure. People, people wondering, okay, well, how accurate is this going to be? A lot of the time I would think that for me, if someone goes from not thinking about their sleep and they start using a tracker, how accurate it is, whether it's a half an hour wrong either side or it's not tracking the, the amount of slow uh, uh, wave sleep correctly or whatever the case may be that someone's complaining about I don't really care to some degree if by simply having that app and or that uh, device is increasing someone's awareness of what they should be doing because that awareness is probably what's going to drive their improvements in sleep over the long term now, now sure once someone gets kind of past that point we obviously want something that's going to be accurate and works well and we can get more deep into the uh see what's going on with their sleep and the, and the quality of that. But if something's going to increase an awareness, I think that can be really useful. Uh, so another example I give is if someone uses an app like MyFitnessPal to start logging their food intake, it's not that every person needs to count calories or every person needs to track their macros or anything like that. It's simply if you've never done this before and you log your food intake for even two weeks, the awareness that's created of what's in the foods that you typically consume versus what we might have as some sort of kind of optimal or ideal intake for you, that kind of uh, awareness lends itself to better habits. Beyond that, it starts to give you skills of understanding, well, what's in it, the typical meals you consume that even if you stop tracking after two weeks, those changes will persist, that you will still know that stuff in the long term and can make better choices when you're thinking about nutritional things without ever continuing to count and, and track macronutrients. So skills like that from an app like, say, MyFitnessPal is useful. If someone wants to take that a bit further and look more at the nutrient density side, there's an app called uh, Chronometer, uh, which uh, works the same way, a food log, but gives you a full breakdown of micronutrients. Um, uh, as well and is a bit more in-depth on that side and you can track specific ones that you may be trying to optimize. Um, I think anything that's going to look at activity can be useful, particularly during dieting phases. Uh, we know during dieting we get decreases in non-exercise activity thermogenesis. People are going to be less inclined to move around and subconsciously may expend a bit less energy. So giving people a minimum uh, step count or amount of activity uh, activity to clock up over the course of the day can be useful. So using either a pedometer or again on your iPhone or um, a watch to be able to track steps can be useful. Uh, sleep is obviously a huge one if you can get an accurate measure on that and just the act of doing it over a period of time 
regardless of, again, this super, how accurate it is, if it's going to be better than it was before in general, and you just increase it to the point where it's staying consistently good, that's going to be useful. Um, and then I like to use things personally, and again, this is not for everyone, but things like heart rate variability could be a useful metric. Um, again, you'll have different people argue on the um, I suppose validity of making training decisions based on it. <clears throat> so, <clears throat> and there's people far smarter than me that can talk about this, but rather than make clear decisions on training based on heart rate variability, I think it's just another piece of the puzzle that I will use to see what my stress response is. So if my heart rate variability, for example, is uh, in the red on a certain day, rather than not training that day, I will still train as planned, but it's more if I see a trend of a number of days in a row where my heart rate variability is showing that there's this increased stress response, then I maybe know I'm getting to the point of my training block where too much fatigue is accumulating and it's time to start maybe a deload. Uh, so for most people, I think they're some of the kind of apps that I push them towards. Anything that's going to create an awareness of what you're doing. Um, and uh, I, I'll give a, a shout out to my friend Dan Pardy, uh, who's at uh, HumanOS. Uh, dot me. He's done some cool stuff of trying to get people who track this data and be able to consolidate that into a model where they can change behaviors. And he's done some really cool work in that area. So um, if people do like tracking stuff and are interested in looking at very data-driven things, uh, Dan has some really uh, cool work in the area of how do we take that and move that into a behavior model for long-term change. Yeah, it's very cool. I had uh, Dan on last year uh, talking sleep, and yeah, it's it's great to be able to to visualize a lot of that stuff. And um, of course, even things like HRV, as you mentioned, is can be a great proxy, especially when we start to use some of these rolling averages, um, as uh, Dr. Daniel Plews talks about with his you know elite endurance athletes, and being able to give us this picture without having to run again these expensive uh, hormone profiles or whatnot all the time. So, so really great points there. Um, I want to respect your time here, Danny. So this is the last couple of questions. If we shift gears uh, to the personal side for yourself, you're like, how do you keep fit and what does your nutrition look like on a day-to-day basis? Uh, cool, yeah. So my own training uh, right now and for the past couple of years has been primarily focused on powerlifting. Uh, so I compete in the 74 kilo class uh, in raw drug-free powerlifting. And so that's where pretty much most of my training time goes. Nice. Uh, outside of that, to, to try and keep some degree of like cardiovascular fitness, I'll try and get some walks in, although I could be doing a lot better uh, than, I, than I typically do. Uh, but so, yeah, so my training is pretty much uh, squatting on average, I would say, three times a week, bench, benching four times a week, deadlifting probably twice, and then adding in accessory work on top of that. Uh, nutrition is just depending to support that. So depending on whether I'm trying to uh, make weight for a meet versus uh, kind of more of an off-season time where I'm aiming to grow will dictate my overall calories. But my structure team seems pretty similar of like the protein distribution I talked about earlier, being cognizant of getting protein distributed throughout the day, uh, making sure most of my food quality is pretty good quality making sure I'm not too low on either carbohydrate or fat intake, but not having precise targets for either of those. Just let it fluctuate to where it goes because uh, neither of those are going to be limiting factors to my performance. So, uh, yeah, that's pretty much uh, me. And and right now, uh, all my athletic endeavors are aimed towards uh, powerlifting. 
Nice. Actually, a question I wanted to circle back to that I get a lot from clients as well is this idea of open days or cheat days or those big blowout meals on a on a Sunday, the pancakes and waffles and everything else. You know, where where do you stand on sort of loosening the rules for people in terms of having uh, wh- whether it's a cheat day, open day, or, or some of these uh, really bigger caloric days? Mm, so I try to think of just having a flexible approach for people um, in that rather than thinking I need to restrict for these six days and then I will just go crazy in one. Thinking that there's no restriction on any particular day for food as long as it fits in with your overall targets. So if you have eaten a certain level of calories, that's most of it's been good food. And at the end of the day, you have a few hundred calories spare and you want a bar of chocolate, for example. then that can probably fit in and cause no real issue in the long term. And I think having that ability not to be able to constrict it to one day where I need to fit as much crap in as possible <laughs> is probably a good idea. Now, that good said... Stuff. Why, why we look at weekly averages is we can essentially borrow from one day to the next. If you know you're going to have a slightly higher calorie day at the weekend because you're going out for a meal with friends, then maybe you just take away from some of the other days and then uh, allow for that. So being a bit more flexible and instead of I'm just going to go crazy, how can I kind of work this into my overall weekly structure? Nice, nice. Very well said. And, of course, from your bio there, being an Arsenal fan, we share a common bond here. So I'm wondering, hey, now, how did you get hooked oh, on, a, on a gunner, as being a Gunner fan as well? Yeah, so uh, a lot of people in my family, my my dad and my uncle are uh, Arsenal fans, and so just kind of grew up with that. And um, so I was, I was actually, while I was uh, brought up in Ireland, I was born uh, just outside London. So a uh, big Arsenal fan all my life. And uh, although now for the last few years it's been quite a suffering process, for there sure. has been some good times in there too. That's funny. I, I'm obviously from Toronto in Canada, but I lived in the south of France for a year, and at that time was in the early 2000s and of course all the French players were playing for Arsenal so by proxy I became an Arsenal fan then so it's been a it's the last few years have been a little bit uh, leaner but uh, listen last question here for you Danny if you could give you know a trainer or practitioner listening in one tip that sort of 20% of the fundamentals those big rocks for really helping men to improve body composition what would that be? Uh, One big tip man Uh, I would think that the first starting point is to uh, take stock of why they want to make a change. Uh, so often we have these, what I call surface level goals, that we, for example, say, okay, I want to lose X amount of uh, pounds. And while that is probably true and uh, it's a fine goal for someone to have, there's probably something underlying that that's driving that. So what is it that you think that's going to give you? What is the reason that you want to do that? Is it for health reasons? Is it that you want to get more confidence and then that is going to leach over to other areas of your life? Uh, There's usually something underneath wanting to create a certain change. And I think really, I suppose, peeling back the layers and trying to get to that underlying reason is crucial because that gives you the leverage to stick with something in the long term, as opposed to if it's this very surface level arbitrary scale weight that's just not something that's going to tie us to a goal long enough. So really spending the time to think about the the reasons why we want something. Number one, making sure that there are actually important reasons, uh, because especially in this age of, of of Instagram and the way the fitness industry can, can go at times, people almost feel that they need to be a certain way. Um, but I think being being aware of why you want something, we're doing something for the right reasons, and knowing those reasons will increase your leverage to achieve that goal in the long term. Fantastic, Danny. Listen, awesome insights and tips here for clients and trainers and docs listening in. Where can people keep up with all the terrific work you're doing and stay connected with you? 
Uh, sure, they can find pretty much everything over at sigmanutrition.com. So we have articles, the podcast is up there, my contact details, and so on. Um, so sigmanutrition.com, if they are on any podcast app, they can just find the podcast at Sigma Nutrition Radio. And then I'm on social media, so if I'm pretty easy to find, I think. You can find either the Sigma page on Facebook or my personal account is there as well. And uh, on Instagram, Danny Lennon underscore Sigma Nutrition. And then I'll be on Twitter as well, the handle Nutrition Daddy. So any of those places, I'm happy to listen to people's questions and hopefully something proves useful to them. Awesome. Well, we'll definitely include all those links and a podcast summary in the show notes at drbubs.com forward slash podcast. Danny, thanks again for coming on today. Thanks again for everyone else who's tuned in. If you guys have any questions or want to leave a comment for Danny on today's episode, you can reach out to us as well on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at drbubs. Of course, if you enjoyed the show, please head over to iTunes, subscribe, and leave us your review. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you guys all next week. The Dr. Bub's Performance Podcast endeavors to provide accurate and helpful information to listeners. These podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Dr. Bub's Performance Podcasts.